welcome to Beckett Talks, the podcast series from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we will be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today. I'm Professor Leanne Norman, Director of our Research Centre for Social Justice in Sport and Society. And for today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Tom Fletcher and Dr. Dan Kilvington to chat to them about their recent AHRC Large Grant Award called Tackling Online Hate in Football. This is a timely project considering the abuse that Marcus Rashford, Jaden Sancho and Bukayo Saka faced following the European Championship final in July 2021. So let's kick off by hearing a little bit more about the project. Tom, can you tell us some background about what the project is and what you'll be doing. Yeah, absolutely. So we um, initially we were approached uh, to bid for this project through um, partners at uh, Dublin City University um, and they identified the uh, opportunity to collaborate on this uh, AHRC and Irish um, Research Council uh, Digital Humanities um, call. And the background of the project was thinking more broadly around um, I think it originally started around online racism specifically and uh, the European Football Championships well before the event had taken place this year uh, and therefore well before we knew what had happened uh, following that event. Um, and the purpose of the, the project was to look at how events and major events, football tournaments in particular, can act as flashpoints for online abuse. Uh, initially, as I say, around racism, uh, and then we thought of branching out into other forms of uh, abuse, whether that be, uh, you know, issues around gender, sexism, homophobia, sectarianism, uh, etc. And what the the project is born out in a, uh, born out of the assumption that events are political spaces, you know, so they're not these kind of whimsical things that we do and we just take part in as part of our leisure time. They act as spaces where we, where people enact, whether it be social, cultural, national, uh, nationalistic, religious, ethnic differences, uh, and that they do, as we say, they act as flashpoints for um, those tensions. And we saw that in the context of the Euros, where you know people inevitably lashed out against people that they perceived to be different and inferior to them based upon a performance in a football match, which to most of us, you think. You know, the classic case, it's just football. But mm. clearly, for many, these events are not just about the sport. They act as spaces whereby actually they can articulate uh, these various forms of hatred. Mm. Uh, and so we're looking. So the project is an examination of Dan. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it amounts to about six or seven European championships. I think between 2008 and 2022, you'll have to excuse my maths on that. So we're looking at both the men and the, the women's championships over that period of time. And it's very strategic to, to look at going back that far uh, because it encompasses a variety of changes in the social media platforms as well. And also a kind of growing influence of, of, of Twitter in particular uh, as you know a mode of, of expression. Um, so we're looking at tracing the extent of online abuse in, the, in those periods. We're starting to look at the networks and where the, uh, you know, the kind of hate manifests from, where it goes to and influences to that. And we'll be engaging with, obviously, uh, policymakers, anti-racism practitioners, uh, 
uh, journalists, etc., on their perceptions of the problem. And also, as of last week, I think we said, Dan, that we would hope to speak to some of the victims of hate if indeed we were able to gain access again to figure out, you know, the nature and the extent of it from, from their perspective as well. And you say that this is obviously a very timely project, Tom, um, and online hate and abuse is certainly a growing concern in and outside of football. But how bad really is it, Dan? I think there's a lot of studies out there and a lot of statistics that suggest how bad it is and that it is getting worse. But I think looking at the European Championships, for example, across those that 12-year period or however long it is, we see how the nature of hate has changed over time. If we just look at the, the context or the background around hate speech online, we look at something like from Amnesty International, they found that every 30 seconds a woman somewhere will receive a hateful comment on Twitter. There's also studies from America that have said that uh, it's estimated that around 20% of college students in the United States have been cyberbullied. And if we just look at how COVID was discussed and spoken about online, um, then recent research has found that Twitter saw a 300% increase in the use of hashtags that actually encourage violence against China and Chinese people in the wake of COVID-19. So that's kind of setting the parameters and background that hate speech is a real problem online. And then if we look at football specifically, football is uh, very, very tribal. It's very emotional. It brings people together. Um, but it also divides uh, fan groups as well at the same time. And it, it leads to the knee-jerk reactions that are caused by a player missing a penalty or getting a red card or whatever it might be. Now, if we look back to the 2014-15 season in the Premier League, kick it out uh, in association with Brandwatch, they actually found that there were over 134,000 discriminatory posts that were posted on social media for that season. That equates to around about 16,800 posts per month. And that's just in relation to Premier League players um, and clubs so we can see that going back six, seven years ago, there was a real problem here and it, it is seemingly getting worse as well. And research is showing that footballers, as well as other people in the public eye, they are prime targets for hate and abuse. And the, the European Championship final, in which the players who missed the penalties was, was a case in point. And what's also worrying is that research from for example, the, the Professional Footballers Association, the PFA, Football Against Racism in Europe, otherwise known as FAIR, among others, are showing that time and time again, even though these messages are being reported as abusive or racist or whatever it might be, they're remaining live on the platforms months after being reported and they should be taken down. So it's illuminating that there's a real problem here and that we have to really try and challenge this as much as we possibly can. I mean, you've both conducted extensive research in this area. So can you tell us why this is happening? You know, in other words, what motivates people to behave like this online? Yeah, I think there's a multitude of factors. And I would possibly suggest there's maybe four core areas to look at. I think the first one is, is really that nature of communication between offline and online spaces determines how people behave or or um the things that they might say, they wouldn't say in these physical spaces. So we've got to look at how these differences play out. And first of all, we've got anonymity. 
And online, we can hide behind these profiles and have different names and a different profile picture. And it gives us that sense of freedom, which leads to a level of disinhibition. That also leads to the second area, which I would say is invisibility. And it's important to consider that because if you're not face to face with the person that you are abusing or saying something hurtful to, you don't see the hurt in their eyes. You don't see you don't really have that empathy there as well. You can basically perform a hit and run and leave the scene of the crime without actually seeing the victim because you're physically displaced from them. So we've got anonymity and invisibility, which are quite closely connected. We've also got the third thing, which is, is I would say, rapid response. So it's the, the knee-jerk reactions, for example, that play out in sport when something happens, a moment happens, an event happens, and it leads to a trigger and people post something that is their first thought or knee-jerk reaction without really considering the audience that they're actually going to be reaching. And I think the fourth one is what we'd call disassociative imagination. And that refers to the idea that it's a bit of a game, it's a bit of fun, it's just the internet, it's not real, we're not physically co-present with these people, therefore it's, it's a bit of a game. And that leads to what we've got in regard to trolling and the different types of trolling that exist. And I think finally, I would say that generally there is a culture of toxicity and hate online where it's slowly becoming normalised that these views are expressed. And people are now more emboldened to say these things. And as we live in echo chambers and these filter bubbles that have been constructed in online spaces, it leads people to be somewhat desensitised to these views and almost to some extent radicalised as well that they're feeling bold and to do so. And not only that, is when you've got politicians and celebrities who are actually publicly using uh, social media platforms to say hateful things about groups and communities or religions or whatever it might be, then it kind of gives authority or legitimacy for regular people to say these things as well. And as long as people are escaping punishments and fines and sanctions for saying these things, and there's not really the deterrence there, then it's going to continue. Leeds Beckett University is a modern, high-quality university transforming lives through professional, academic and applied learning and adding to the social, economic and cultural life of our city and region. We educate the bright minds that will help solve the problems of tomorrow. We collaborate with thousands of regional, national and international businesses to ensure our research and courses are contemporary, rich and relevant to meet the needs of our students and their present and future employers. Our campuses house exceptional teaching, research and learning environments which provide our students with access to state-of-the-art facilities. Across a range of disciplines, our researchers are striving to improve quality of life, equality and the environment around us. We are dedicated to making a difference. To find out more about Leeds Beckett University, our courses and our community of staff, students and alumni, please visit leedsbeckett.ac.uk. You know, social media is where people get their information from. You know, particularly, I was going to say, younger people, you know, they spend their lives on smartphones. It's just the access to the to the information. And we, we saw through, you know, with, through Brexit and things like that as well. People, you know, are clearly, um, you know, can be influenced through media campaigns and social media campaigns in that respect. 
what will be interesting to see, and again, it, you know, it's it's not something that we've necessarily built into the project, but through the period of, of the pandemic, for instance, whereby those everyday social interactions with people going to places together, you know, socialising around stadiums, etc., whether we see a difference in terms of patterns of behaviour and the ways of communication and the way that the networks work, because evidently people have spent more time engaging and connecting virtually or electronically anyway, more digitally, I guess, because they've they've not had that face-to-face interaction. And Tom, of course, you've worked in other sports as well. Um, is this something, I know the project's focused on football, but is this a phenomenon that is unique to football or do we see it in other sports? I think it's a really excellent question. I think the answer is always going to be yes, we do see it. Of course we see it. I don't think we see it to the, to the same extent by any means. Um, you know, we, we know cases within American football. Again, Dan, I think we've talked increasingly around, uh, you know, uh, examples within ice hockey as well in Canada. In the context of something like cricket, for instance, which is clearly where I'm, you know, where I'm closer to and where my background lies, the irony is that the, the biggest hoo-ha around racism on social media has been predicated by, or, you know, the, the case study that you'd see would actually be a professional player, somebody going through his social media profile and realizing that X number of years ago that player had been racially abusive, uh, racially abusive, um, and and the player Ollie Robinson was subsequently banned by the, the governing body for for I think a period of five matches or something like that for historic you know for historical tweets, which in itself raises some really interesting questions, which may well come through in the project around again the the that that kind of knee-jerk reaction, as Dan says, and the consequences of that, you know, more long-term, particularly for individuals who perhaps find themselves in the public eye or, you know, an employer goes back through, you know, um, their their profile and finds something that they uh, that they don't particularly like. There has been examples of individual players, in, you know, England cricketers, so in the case of Joffrey Archer, both Moeen Ali from ethnically diverse backgrounds who have stated that they've received abuse. But again, not to dis, you know, to discredit that, you know, Joffrey Archer was identified as saying he'd received, say, two instances on Instagram. Uh, I think Moeen Ali, again, maybe one or two instances. So it's, you know, it's there, evidently, but the scale is, is, you know, is absolutely, you know, it's rampant within football by comparison. I think we've seen within other sports where, you know, cricket and I think, I think it might have been rugby as well. They identified that they were that they would participate in, for instance, social media boycotts over the summer and things like that in reaction to escalating um, instances in football. But there's been no similar examinations, to the best of my knowledge, Dan may well correct me, uh, of the existence of online racism in sports other than, well, within the context of, say, rugby or cricket, probably in American football, but not otherwise. Are you going to take an intersectional lens to this? Because, of course, we've given a lot of examples of male um, players in cricket and in football there, Tom. Will you be taking an intersectional lens? Are you going to be looking at how race and gender uh, and other you know, identities, perhaps disability or sexual orientation, for example, how they, um, you know, online hate around those aspects of identity? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the things that Tom said at the, right at the start was that we originally had the idea of looking probably closely at race and racism. 
but then in the in this in the discussions in the team we then wanted to take that more intersectional lens to go deeper into this phenomenon that's happening on, online so originally again correct me if i'm wrong tom but from memory we were looking at the men's european championships and then as the discussions in the team unfolded we wanted to actually start looking at the women's championships as well to look at how the discourse online was perhaps different or what similarities exist and therefore of course we will not only be looking at uh, race and racism closely but also as tom said sectarianism gender sexism um sexual orientation and the different permutations of hate speech that exist so that's what we're really wanting to dig into and right now in our we've had our first meeting and we're we're currently discussing the best ways to uh, create systematic literature review or do it thematically and we are discussing at the moment the different areas that we want to look at um, to help underpin the things that we're going to be digging into when we start that social media analysis. And considering that this is a problem that is growing uh, and we seem to have limited success in, in challenging and, and tackling it, with the data that you get from this fantastic, really original project, what are you going to be doing with that data? How are you going to be using that to challenge the problem? It's a really excellent question. Um, it was one of the, I mean, what, what was really interesting from this process um, was that, you know, you got to respond to the to the reviewers, the people that were looking at over the application. And that was exactly the question to say, this is a brilliant project and a great idea. And evidently, you know, it's something that absolutely should be funded. However, organisations like Twitter are notoriously difficult and stubborn to deal with. And therefore, you can collect as much data as you want, but how are you actually going to, um, you know, get Twitter and others to, to respond to it? Um, and there is no real easy answer to that, to be fair. I think at the moment, at this moment in time, we know that Twitter and other other organisations are looking at their own practices. They've acknowledged that there's a problem. They're challenging the best way to go about it. Again, Dan, you you know you you've mentioned around how anonymity is clearly one of the areas that you would identify as a problem. And Twitter have turned around, not to you necessarily, but Twitter have turned around and said, you know, making you know unanonymizing, you know, is not necessarily the way to go, and things like that. So what we have is part of the you know part of our project is clearly to collect the data from Twitter. But we also have a variety of other means of data collection. So it will be, you know, working with our partners, which will be, you know, football associations, will be fan groups, uh, will be anti-racism organisations like Kick It Out, like Sporting Equals, um, to get their views on, you know, how, you know, how data collected from this project can be useful to their practices as well. So one of the benefits for us and where I see the, the true value in this project is, yes, if you can get Twitter to change its practices to identify these issues and to eradicate them, then, of course, you've had a massive impact. But the project, it goes well beyond that in terms of its target. So in terms of, you know, co-creating educational resources, I should say, with, you know, with these organisations and then disseminating those and hopefully getting those into, you know, into wider circulation. This is where we also see value in the project to take what we see online uh, and, and put it into the hands of people who are working with communities who are potentially affected through, um, you know, wider schemes of online hate. 
Yeah, and I'll probably come in and just to, to reiterate what Tom's said there is, I suppose we do have our standard academic outputs that you would expect, such as a co-authored book and journals and conferences, but it's the other things as well, which I think Tom's picked up on really well there, which is working with the partner organisations. There's many different partner organisations that uh, are practitioners, they're hands-on, they're doing this work day in, day out. So if we can have a, a good relationship with them, and they can help shape our projects, so it's two-way, uh, a two-way relationship, then they will benefit from the work that, that we are putting out as well. So they might be able to use to influence or shape their practice and help underpin their educational materials or the way that they train their staff around social media. So there's, there's many, many benefits that we, we hope that we can get from this project and from the data that we're going to, to extract and, and analyze. And I think another thing is importantly in the last meeting we talked about, I don't really like the term victims, but I suppose victims of, of those who are targeted by online abuse. If we can speak to them and understand the way that that makes them feel, how they cope with that, what the coping mechanisms might be, then we can use this information, which is vital, to help try and help future players, for example, who might be experiencing this, to put forward a toolkit around around coping, which is really important too. So I think there's loads of outputs that we're, we're looking forward to, and I think it's it's a very exciting project in that in that respect. Thanks, Dan, and, and thanks, Tom. And you're right, it is a very exciting project, and this is really the strength of bringing this cross-school, cross-institutional collaboration and these the different strengths of the different researchers together to tackle what is a very significant and, like we've said, growing problem. Um, so we're certainly very excited to see how it progresses and the the, the subsequent impact um, of the project. So thank you ever so much for sharing uh, your successful uh, application to the Research Council with us today and um, we wish you the very best of luck on this journey um, and we're very uh, excited to see what comes of it and as it progresses. So thanks to Dr Tom Fletcher and to Dr Dan Kilvington for sharing uh, today about their Tackling Online Hate in Football project. Thank you both. The Beckett Talk podcasts are released every Tuesday. So don't forget to check our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to find out more details on our next episode. See you next week.